the lovely science choir. Thank you. Um, straight on to our next speak speaker, um, Dr. Claire Hampson. Dr. Claire Hampson is a trainee pathologist and lecturer in pathology. She is also the creator of an award-winning fringe festival show called A Window in Mine and has written and performed in another fringe festival show called Death and Faxes in 2013. She has had shows in, also in the Melbourne Comedy International Festival and she script advises for the ABC TV show The Dr. Blake Mysteries. She is a regular um, storyteller here with Laboratory Story, which is great. And there's another key thing I have to tell you about her tonight, and that is pay careful attention to her outfit. Um, using a light microscope um, with polarising light filters, she photographed the crystals formed in a drop of single malt scotch. <laughs> Did you get that? She photographed a drop of single malt scotch, printed it onto a fabric, and sewed it into a dress for us tonight. <laughs> I think it was for us. It was for us, wasn't it? Yeah, it was for us. Um, the rest of her talk bears uh, no resemblance to any, or relevance to anything about light, so uh, despite multiple emails. But please make her <laughs> very welcome, Dr. Claire Hampson. Hello. Tonight, I'm going to showcase a Scotch man by the name of John Hunter. Are there any proud Scots in the crowd tonight? I have to apologise. <laughs> there is going to be a bit more of that really terrible impersonation of your accent coming up. Um, so tonight, I've, actually, has everyone met the organ? I don't know if you, if you noticed it there. It's... Um, Inconspicuous, but um, tonight I'm going to involve the organ in my talk um, and involve you guys as well. I'm, I'm a pathology lecturer, so keeping people awake during my lectures is part of kind of what I do. And so, what we're going to do, every time I point to the organ like this, you guys have to call out, organs, right? <laughs> Quickly, because I've only got ten minutes, loudly, concisely, all right? Ready to practice? Okay. What is the plural of organ? Fantastic. Okay, this is going to go really well. Um, I also wanted to involve the smoke machine, but they wouldn't let me turn it on. Okay. John Hunter, or Jockey, as he was known as a boy, was born in an unremarkable farmhouse near Glasgow in 1728. When I was a boy, I wanted to know why the leaves changed colour in the autumn. I watched the ants, bees, birds. I pestered people with questions about what nobody knew or cared about. Yes, John Hunter had discovered the but why game. So, as we all know, you know, if you keep asking your parents, but why, but why, but why, eventually they'll put the Care Bears video back on. So, luckily, in the 18th century, there was no television and John Hunter kept asking why. Now, even though he was naturally inquisitive, he wasn't particularly keen on books or school, didn't go to university and had a job he didn't particularly like. What normally happens to these sorts of people is that someone in their family has to come up with a job for them to do. And in this case, it was John's brother, William, who ran an anatomy school and dissecting room in London. And what did they dissect? Yes, yes getting it already. 
So Hunter loved this work and he decided he was going to become a surgeon. Now, I just need to point something out. Surgeons back then, unlike what they are today, were not doctors. If you went and saw a doctor, essentially you were seeing a physician, a learned man of medicine. If you went to see a surgeon, you were seeing some kind of rogue barber um, who just really went around hacking off limbs without any kind of evidence base to it. Hunter, to become a surgeon, just had to follow one around for a few years, so that's what he did. In his work as a surgeon, he ended up in a, in a military expedition um, on an island somewhere, and he was treating gunshot wounds. And what he noticed was that when people got shot somewhere where they weren't close to surgery and they didn't get operated on, they actually fared pretty well compared to some of the ones that got operated on. Now, <laughs> controversial <laughs> for his time. Um, they didn't know about bacteria and stuff then as well, so who knows what the surgeons were actually doing to these poor people. But what he essentially did was collected those observations, put them together, and actually started to predict which of the injuries, if you'd been shot through a bone and it had broken, that needed an operation. If it just grazed your skin, you're better off away from the dirty, filthy surgeon's knives. When Hunter got back to London, he returned to his old childhood game of but why, but way. And still, with no television invented, he continued and spread it out to but what, but where, and but who. <laughs> Anything and everything. I'm just going to run through a list. What are bees made of? How do bones grow? How do lizard tails regenerate? What is the blood supply of the placenta? What is the blood, uh, sorry, can fish hear? What is the anatomy of the camel's stomach? Teeth. What happens to birds in winter? How do testes descend down into the scrotum? How do herons make that noise? Can we cure drowning by sticking a tube in the airway and pumping air in with a giant set of bellows? No. <laughs> Why do people get better when given a fake medication? Placebo effect. He documented it many, 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 many years before it was called that. What are these lumps in the lungs of this person with a tumour? Contamination is what he called it, and it's actually one of the first observations of what we now know as metastatic or spreading tumour. Can I invent a procedure to cure popliteal aneurysms? Yes. And in a really disgusting study, um, what does the fluid that washes in and around of your brain taste like? <laughs> a little brackish <laughs> and somewhat disagreeable. <laughs> Hunter didn't just collect observations, though. He also really liked collecting stuff. So had he been born in the 20th century, he would almost certainly have been featured on hoarders. In his garden, he kept the live stuff. So he had leopards, jackals, stallions, sheep, goats, rams, silkworms, bees, duck, geese, fish, buffaloes, ostriches, eagles, dogs, pigs, and poultry. In his house, he kept the dead stuff. Preserved specimens of humans, animals, plants, fossils, and marmalade. <laughs> but there are a few times in his life where he collected things that he probably shouldn't have. And by that, I mean syphilis. <laughs> For some reason, Hunter was convinced that gonorrhea and syphilis were the same thing. He described an experiment where he took a sharp blade, dipped it in the pus of someone's gonorrhea wound, yes, from a urethra, and then took it and made two punctures, one on the head and one on the foreskin, of someone's healthy... Yes. Lo and behold, the gonorrhea 
transferred to the other one had caused irritation and the ulcers of syphilis appeared. So he concluded it was pretty much the same thing. He reported this in the third person, but during a lecture to his students, he allegedly said, I produced in myself a lesion, which started the rumour that has been very difficult to squash, um, that he gave himself syphilis for science. So we actually don't know if this happened, but, um, or if the med student just got it wrong, but it sounds like a pretty horrendous thing to do to yourself, but also probably worse to do it to somebody else. <laughs> Hunter also collected pupils, um, students is what I mean. <laughs> One was Edward Jenner, who some of you might know actually discovered vaccination and pretty much saved the world. And um, these two sort of really intellectual powerhouses used to correspond with each other. And amazingly, Jenner kept a copy of all the letters from Hunter. And we've just got this incredible ability now to like look actually a window into this sort of vortex of absolute genius. And I read through the letters, and what do you think I found? Hedgehogs, mostly. Um, so, <laughs> got some. Dear Jenner, I received yours by Dr. Hicks with the hedgehog alive. I put it in the garden, but I want more. <laughs> Dear Jenner, I want you to pursue the experiments on the heat of the hedgehog this winter. And if you could send a call any of them, I should be glad, as I expended all I had except two. One an eagle ate, and a ferret caught the other. <laughs> Dear Jenner, have you made any experiments with hedgehogs? And can you send me some this spring? For all those sent me died, and I am hedgehogless. <laughs> we didn't get to see Jenner's replies, he didn't keep a copy, but um, I assume I was somewhere on the lungs of, Dear Hunter, um, you know you have to feed them, right? Uh, P.S. Hedgehogless is not a word. <laughs> now, I hope that you're all with me here and thinking, John Hunter, pretty great guy. Look at what he's done for science. And yes, while his work has advanced medicine immeasurably, John Hunter was also a very naughty man. Visiting London in the time of John Hunter was the surprising Irish giant, Charles Byrne. And he stood at a reported eight feet and two inches. His job was a travelling freak show, and unfortunately, it hadn't treated Charles well. He suffered from both tuberculosis and chronic alcoholism. At the age of 22, the Irish giant had nearly consumed himself to death. This meant that the medical schools of London were circling in like vultures. John Hunter, predictably, was exceptionally keen on acquiring the body of this giant for his collection. Hunter offered the Irish giant a payment in advance for his body after death, which he refused. Hunter then ordered a man to sit at the giant's side every single day, watching him and waiting. Charles Byrne, understandably, freaked out. And what he did, he withdrew from the public completely. He vowed that he would not be anatomised and they would never, ever, ever get their hands on his... Exactly. He made orders that when he died, he would not be nailed... Oh, sorry, when he died, he would be nailed into a coffin made of lead. He would be guarded day and night. His best and his most trustworthy friends would be there until the coffin could be taken down the river and dropped into the water to 20 fathoms deep. The day came and Charles Byrne passed away. 
An enormous iron coffin, sealed and intact, made its way through the streets and was lowered into the mouth of the river. The giant was finally safe and at peace, deep in the water. Or so they thought. <laughs> because what should appear three years later in Hunter's collection, but a very large, almost giant-sized skeleton, he took it after all. What an absolute thing I shouldn't say in this environment. What was he thinking? <laughs> they'd get away with it. Oh, giant, what giant? Oh, no, I know that. That's another giant. I have no idea where that came from. Like, people are going to know that you did that, Hunter. Uh, apparently, what he'd done was bribe his best friends to giving him the body before the coffin was taken into the water. Hunter boiled down the body to its bones in his house, and he hid it until he felt that the gossip had died down enough to display it. <laughs> but just... <laughs> But just before you get really mad at the friends for selling the body, the rumoured sum was 500 pounds, which in the 18th century is equivalent to about 60,000 Australian dollars today. So that's, I mean, would you trust your friends to guard your body when that kind of money is at stake? Charles Ben probably shouldn't have. That story isn't all bad. I mean, it's quite bad. But there's a little 1% of goodness because... That skeleton in Hunter's collection was seen by Dr. Cushing about 100 years later, and he actually opened the skull and found the cause of gigantism. He diagnosed a tumour, and then he went on to pretty much invent the entire field of endocrinology, um, hormones, and he basically helped many people around the world with uh, this condition of gigantism. So, yeah, hmm. <laughs> Still not entirely making up for it. So... In his later years, um, Hunter developed angina, which were recurrent attacks of chest pain, and he recognised that they were actually brought on by exertion, which included yelling at people, which he actually did quite a lot of. <laughs> he may or may not have been joking when he said, my life is at the mercy of any rogue that chooses to provoke me. He was actually right. So, at age 65, after being made very angry at a meeting, he walked out into the next room and suddenly collapsed and died. An autopsy, weirdly um, done by his brother-in-law, uh, confirmed the heart disease that he had and, for the record, didn't find any syphilis. <laughs> at the time of his death, Hunter had an estimated 13,687 specimens in his collection and they now have become the Hunterian Museum in London, which is open to the public, and now you know the story. Next time you're there, you should pop in. So, I hope that tonight I've given you a brief insight into the life and work of John Hunter, whom other people have called the founder of scientific surgery, the man who single-handedly raised the status of the surgeon, Anatomist, biologist, naturalist, physician, surgeon and pathologist all at once and all in the highest. But I like to call hunter and collector. <laughs> Come on, you're all thinking it. I admire him for the many times that he asked, but why, but what, but where and but how. But I think sometimes it's just as good to ask, but should we? <laughs> Thanks. Thanks.